Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Not a lot of baseball action yesterday. Certainly not any baseball action on the field that was relevant to the Toronto Blue Jays in the American League wildcard race. Some baseball action that was just fun. Ronald Acuna Jr. hitting a grand slam, becoming a 30-70 guy, or 30-60 guy, rather, uh, on his way to being a 30-70 guy. That was a fun game. There was also a lot of action from the transaction front because all those guys who were on waivers that we had talked about for the last couple of days found homes. Well, some of them found homes. Randall Gritchick did not find a home. He just cleared waivers, uh, as did a couple of lower-level guys like Carlos Carrasco, Jose Cisnero. Um, but there was some... Real movement there. The Toronto Blue Jays did not land anyone. Now, we don't know if that's because they opted not to claim anyone or if the players they claimed had been scooped up by then. We did see Harrison Bader and Hunter Renfro, two right-handed hitting outfielders who could potentially fill a need for the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, They both went to the Cincinnati Reds. The Reds having to do the awkward thing of, well, you got to claim both because you don't know who's going to get through, and now they have to employ both of them and clear the the requisite 40-man spot. Not a bad spot to be in if you're the Cincinnati Reds, though, to add those two guys. So the right-handed hitting outfielders of potential value uh, did not find their way to the Toronto Blue Jays. Randall Gritchick did. They decided not to claim him. Um, Now, this is a blind process, too, so you don't know at the time that Gritchick's the last one left or anything like that. Uh, On the pitching front, Lucas Giolito was gone long before uh, the Blue Jays would have had uh, a crack at him. Giolito, Ronaldo Lopez, and Matt Moore all going to the Cleveland Guardians, who are not good and have not operated as if they're in for this playoff race, but they're only five games back of the twins who are also not very good. So maybe the the guardians get a little boost here. Uh, only name to land on a wild card relevant team was Dominic Leone, who is added to the Seattle Mariners bullpen. That is just full of former Toronto blue Jays guys who weren't all that good, like Trent Thornton and Taylor Sacedo and now Dominic Leone. Uh, so Seattle adds an arm to their bullpen. Nobody else in the wild card race Uh, does much of anything on the waiver front. uh, The other name of note is that Josh Donaldson, who had been outright released, not uh, placed on waivers. He landed with the Milwaukee Brewers, but on a minor league deal. So he'll go down to, I believe it's the Nashville sound uh, and try to work his way back there. We got a fun show today. We'll talk about some of that stuff a little later on. We've got Meg Rowley uh, of Fangraphs and effectively wild on at 1130. We'll talk to her about those moves and the Seattle Mariners push in the AL West. Uh, We have Susie Hunter of DNVR Sports coming on at 11 to help us tee up the Rocky side of the series. We'll talk to Doug Fox around 1035, uh, get the Spencer Horwitz scouting report because we believe Spencer Horwitz will be added to the Blue Jays roster today along with Chad Green because rosters do expand by two players today. Uh, And we'll talk to Caitlin McGrath in a minute here. As we've done... A handful of times recently, I will note and admit that there is a Canada basketball FIBA World Cup game on right now, and we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, If that's something that interests you, Dan Schulman, our pal on the call over on Sportsnet uh, Canada right now, leading Brazil 33-27. It's been a day of upsets in the FIBA World Cup as the second round gets underway. Puerto Rico just finished beating the Dominican Republic, which if you are the type of basketball fan who is looking at this World Cup primarily as an Olympic qualifier, that's a big one because the Dominican Republic are Canada's biggest competition for that second America spot in the Olympics. So if we presume the U S is going to get one of them, Dominican Republic taking an L there today and complicating their path to the quarterfinals, uh, potentially 
a boost for Canada. There's also a scenario where it actually ends up costing Canada in the long run because the Dominican end up avoiding the U.S. in the next round, etc. But uh, we'll play that out when we play it out. Canada can put themselves in a very, very good spot today. They cannot clinch a quarterfinals berth today, but they can clinch in all except a weird tie-breaking convoluted scenario on Sunday uh, where they'd have to be blown out by Spain and Latvia would have to beat Brazil by enough points, etc. Uh, so Canada can have themselves in a pretty good spot if they close out this win. 35-27 against Brazil right now. Again, that's over on Sportsnet and we'll continue to check in on it uh, throughout the show. Right now, though, we'll turn to the Toronto Blue Jays who open a three-game set at Colorado tonight. They're taking on the Rockies. Uh, Hyunjin Ryu against Chris Flexen will get us started over there, uh, joining us now to talk about that and the waivers that weren't and the roster expansion is Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. Caitlin, good morning. Uh, thank you for delaying brunch to be on with us. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Uh, so how you doing? Uh, I, I, all this waiver stuff, did, did you put much time and energy into thinking about who the Jays could potentially land and where they'd fit? Or, or did you just kind of assume anyone good would be gone long before the Jays came up in the waiver process? Yeah, I would say I didn't spend too much time thinking about it because it just seemed unlikely that the Blue Jays would get anyone because of their place in the order, I guess, and their standings and all that kind of thing. I mean, I guess I thought, like, hmm, who would be a good fit? But it doesn't really matter now because none of them came. And I guess we'll find out, like, what happens with Gritchuk or, the, you know, the guy. I think he was the one guy that mm-hmm. went unclaimed. Um, you know, I saw Josh Johnson got signed by the Brewers. So I guess in theory, like, Gritchuk could get signed by somebody. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really, ex- I didn't really expect the Blue Jays to be a part of that, really. And if you're the Blue Jays, I guess the Dominic Leone goes to Seattle, but Texas wasn't, nobody got through to Texas. They weren't able to add the arms. Cleveland kind of grabbed all the good pitching arms, and Cleveland could catch Minnesota in the AL Central, but isn't really relevant to the wild card race. The way this all played out, more or less, a, not a best case scenario for the Jays because they didn't get anyone themselves, but a pretty, pretty non factor this all ended up being given all the, you know, airtime and words people gave to it over the last couple of days, right? Yeah, exactly. I think at this point, if you're the Blue Jays, you're just, you, you have your eyes on Texas. That seems the most likely team that might falter. You still can control your destiny specifically against them with a four game series coming up. So I don't think you get too worked up about you know, what Cleveland did because you're done with them and that's over in the central. And um, like you said, some other teams made minor moves and over in the NL, the Reds did a few things. But again, you're not really worrying about that. So I think, yeah, as you say, best case scenario in terms of them not getting anybody, but then no one else getting anybody that's really going to impact them. Okay, so it also means that the Blue Jays, for, uh, not 40 men, their roster expansion decision today gets simplified. There was a case where, who knows, Harrison Bader ends up landing in Toronto, and that changes what you're doing with rosters expanding today. Uh, none of that is necessary. Caitlin, we are very, very, very sure that the pitching move for Chad, uh, for the roster expansion is going to be Chad Green. Hagen Danner will get put on the 60-day IL with his oblique strain because we're almost out of time for him to do a rehab assignment and make it back anyway. Chad Green will be activated. Um, what are your... So for anyone who hasn't been following along, by the way, Chad Green got into a ton of rehab games. He ended up pitching 12 and a third innings. Uh, he only allowed two earned runs, and those all came on one home run in, in one outing. Had a 15-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. Caitlin, where are your expectations for where Chad Green will slot in for this bullpen and how John Schneider might use him initially. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a boost for the bullpen, for sure. Like you said, he's looked really good in his rehab outings. Obviously, that's AAA, so it's a little bit different. But still, he somewhat looks like vintage Chad Green, more or less. And it's good for the bullpen to get a fresh arm immediately. I know that they have to be sort of careful with him because he's coming off Tommy John surgery, and so you don't want to necessarily, like, you know, force him into, like, multi-inning back-to-back right away. You're not going to do that. But I do think, especially with Swanson still out, and, you know, you hope that he comes back relatively soon when his 15 days are out. But I think that Chad Green has the experience to come into games in late innings, but the Blue Jays also have the luxury of having such a good bullpen this year that you don't need Chad Green immediately to come in and save anything or to be a key guy necessarily. You just need him to be a guy. Like, that's how they've operated almost all year with their bullpen. It's just been, you know, passing the baton to each other, and everybody's been really effective in their role. And so you still have Jordan Romano, obviously, as your closer, but you still have Hicks, who's probably your eighth-inning guy. You still have Mesa, who's a great setup guy. You still have Trevor Richards, who's been, you know, an elite strikeout pitcher this year. You still have a ton of guys that you can slot in there and – they can handle sort of those high leverage spots because they've been doing it all year. And then maybe you ease Chad Green into it a little bit. You don't have to. Like, I don't think that he would require that. I think that there's probably muscle memory there of being a a setup guy for the uh, Yankees. And he's done it so many times before that I'm sure he'd be okay to just get in there and do it. But the Blue Jays don't have to. Like, they, you know, maybe it's a nice situation, too, if they're playing some teams that, Mm-hmm. Aren't, aren't so good. Like maybe you're not necessarily even having to throw anyone in leverage in these uh, in these upcoming games. That would be the ideal. And so you get him a few kind of easy outings, easy quote unquote, so to speak, and you ease him into it. So I think that it's going to be a really big boost for the bullpen. I think they're excited to get him back. The pitching staff in general is excited to get him back because everybody knows sort of the potential that he has. Yeah, and like you said, I think that was a great point of, hey, you've got nine games in a row here against last place teams who have like a 310 collective win percentage when they're not playing against each other. Uh, hey, a couple more games like Wednesday's game where you're up 7 nothing and you're up comfortably. And I mean, in that case, they went to Bassett. They just let Bassett kind of extend and, and continue on. But you turn to Jay Jackson there. Um, you know, you've you've had three out say or three inning saves for Bowden Francis. Yeah, if you're up five, six, seven runs, in a couple of these games those are really great low leverage spots to get chad green's footing uh back under him also kind of let you keep going with jay jackson and bowden francis as they compete for ostensibly one spot whenever whenever uh, eric swanson is back and of course there's the dan shulmanism of those things work themselves out but probably one of those guys is going back down once swanson's back um so caitlin the pitching side of, of this roster expansion is pretty straightforward the hitting side and there were a number of reports yesterday including from our ben nicholson smith that spencer horwitz is going to be the guy on the hitting side a couple weeks ago we thought hey maybe that was a nathan lucas given the defensive value the pinch running value uh things like that they surprised us a little bit by calling up mason mccoy when bobachette hit the il maybe that scratches the pinch running need on that bench uh and then you know, you look ahead or, or you look to Wednesday when John Schneider mentioned, yeah, it would be nice to have a little bit more contact ability off the bench. So Spencer Horwitz is going to get the call here. We we firmly believe based on a, a bunch of reporting. Um, what do you what do you like about Spencer Horwitz? What does the team like about Spencer Horwitz and how do you see him fitting in here? Yeah, I feel like when 
Schneider talked to us a few days ago, the only thing he didn't say is it's Spencer Horowitz. He just <laughs> continued to describe everything that Spencer Horowitz has done this season. We need a larger <laughs> left-handed hitter with a contact profile who's plays first base but has a couple reps at second and left field. And, you know, we'd like someone in the 445 to 455 OBP range. Yeah, that's basically how we laid it out. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, so no surprise, he'll be the guy. Uh, good for him. He's earned it. He had a little bit of a taste of the major leagues uh, a couple months ago, but now he'll presumably get a, an extended run, hopefully, maybe not a ton of playing time. That's the other key thing is I think the Blue Jays need someone who's okay coming off the bench because that's probably going to be the role, and he can do that. So I wouldn't expect him to have a ton of playing time, but I think that he's definitely a great key guy to – do exactly what John Shutter said. Like, I think that he can come off the bench and he can give them contact. He can, you know, move the ball. I don't, it was a while ago now, but I remember when he was called up, like he immediately got his first hit. He was on base a couple of times. He was, he was getting walked. He didn't, he didn't seem phased at all from the major league experience. And I think that's probably what tips the skills in his direction too. If you're, maybe looking at someone like Aralvis Martinez or, or Addison Barger, the way, where the Blue Jays are right now is they can't really afford someone coming in and being sort of daunted by the experience of the majors. They need offense right now. I think that's another thing is like prioritize offense because that's what your team's biggest weakness has been, surprisingly so, but it has been to this point. And so you just need to bring in guys that are you're confident are going to help with that offense. Like you really can't, I think, afford have some, have, having someone come up and just be completely sort of overwhelmed by the major league experience and not able to come off the bench, not able to do what they need. And so I think that's probably why you saw um, Spencer get the call or will get the call, I guess. Um, and, yeah, again, he's earned it. He's had a really great season. He's pretty mature at this point. It looks like he's ready, like his bat is ready to go. His There's going to be a decision coming on him. I mean, if Brandon Belt leaves in free agency or maybe retires, I don't know what his plans are going to be, but that's a that's a space for Horitz next year, probably, uh, mm-hmm. depending on what happens with Belt. But, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But, yeah, let's see what he does in September. I, I think that he can be really key for the Blue Jays. And Belt actually said on the the foul territory show this week that he's considering retiring at the end of the year, and uh, that's something we heard him talk about last year as well. So yeah, this is a real audition for Spencer Horwitz, who is almost 26, so he should be major league ready if he's ever going mm-hmm. to be uh, as well. For anyone who doesn't know or hasn't followed along, uh, Spencer Horwitz has hit like crazy uh, this year. And he's been one of the hottest hitters in the system all year, but especially lately he's hitting 337 on the year. His OPS is 945, even adjusting for the fact that everyone's hitting in the international league. You know, that's been about 45% better than a league average hitter there Um, for a first baseman slash DH prospect, not a ton of power. He has 10 home runs this year over 107 games, but he, he, he also, he's one of those guys that like, because he's such a smart player and reads pitchers so well, he's also got nine stolen bases. He's, uh, you know, the the walk rate's higher than the strikeout rate, so a lot to like there. But, Caitlin, one of the sticking points and one of the reasons Spencer Horwitz has not come up yet is he's primarily been a first baseman slash DH. Now, he's played three games at second base this year at AAA, and he's played a, a couple dozen games in left field. The reports that I've heard are those haven't gone exceptionally well. Um, so I guess the path to Spencer Horwitz on this 
this Blue Jays team, though, right now, and this is still valuable, so I don't mean to minimize it, but when you look at this, given that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to play every day, that Brandon Belt is going to play every day against righties, and that Spencer Horwitz hits left and is also a first base slash DH, um, are you looking at this as he's probably going to be like a pinch hit situational specialist could you see the jays trying to find a left field game for him against the righty or something like that or i i guess you know there's also the brandon belt back thing that that kind of looms over all of this but I, I guess what do you see his path to playing time being yeah um a lot of things there to unpack yeah uh, sorry I think belt, <laughs> it's okay i think bell is okay i talked to him before they left he seemed like he could have hit that day I guess it was, what, Wednesday, mm-hmm. and he said he should be good to go by today. Um, and in terms of fitting Horwitz in, I'd be surprised if the Bougies are in a position where they're optimizing opportunities for him to get a start, which, again, is like all due respect to him. It's just it's not necessarily the priority right now. Their priority is to win, and to win, they need their best guys in there, and not to say that Spencer Horowitz wouldn't be one of their best guys. It's just that if he's not hitting the way that Davis Schneider is, like you're going to do anything to get Davis Schneider in to the lineup if he continues to hit the way he has. So you talk about like left field starts. Well, maybe, but what if you have Witt gets hot again and you want him at second, then you want Davis Schneider at left? You like so I feel like unless Horowitz comes up and you know is four for four in his first. Um, pinch hit opportunities and he's really looking good and you're like oh you need to get this guy in there I think that would be the only scenario where they're really juggling to get him in there but I feel like to start out with they will probably just use him in pinch hit opportunities and go from there and if he gets really hot maybe they find a way to get him in like I think John Schneider has made it clear that at this point in the season where they are like performance is probably the biggest factor in terms of getting you in the lineup every day obviously the Regular starters for everyday guys, if they go over four one day, like they're not going to be out of the lineup the next day. But and certainly in those like last few spots where you're deciding between, you know, a Biggio or a David Schneider or an Espinal or whoever, you're looking at who's performing the best and whose bat do we want in the lineup and who has the best matchup potential and all that kind of stuff you're considering. So I would think Horowitz probably is in a pinch hitting role to start out with. But, again, he can still be a factor in that for sure. And I think the Blue Jays will tell him that, hey, you're maybe not going to get a ton of playing time to start, but you can be a huge factor in this month for us. So, you know, go out there and do your thing. Yeah, you might only get five plate appearances, but they'll be the five highest leverage plate appearances you'll get in, you know, (laughs) in all of this season and and maybe your whole major league career given the stakes here, uh, which has got to be a cool challenge. Uh, So, Caitlin, you mentioned John Schneider's lineup decisions have, you know, have are, are by necessity now prioritizing offense in some spots. Bo Bichette and Matt Chapman are on the IL, at least for another week still. Um, we can presume, given where he's hitting the lineup and how well he's done, Davis Schneider is going to be in there every day, whether it's second, third, or left field. When it comes to the other spot, um, is this a hot hand situation between Espinal, Biggio, and Ernie Clement? Do, do you think Clement has made enough of a case across the minors and, and his couple opportunities here for the everyday reps at shortstop? How do you see that one shaking out, especially in a series against Colorado where there's a righty starter, a lefty starter, and a potential bullpen day? So there really is an opportunity to spread this around, but John Schneider probably needs to play the hot hand a little bit too. Yeah, I think like Clement would probably get the first stab at it and then yeah if he goes four for four or something 
maybe you don't go for the matchup with Espinal and you just keep riding Ernie Clement. But if Ernie Clement goes over four, maybe you want to get Espinal back in there at shortstop again against a lefty because he has hit lefties pretty well this this season and over his career. And so I really just think it's going to be like game-to-game decision-making. I think it's going to be a lot of riding the hot hand. I think that, yes, matchups will play into it, but I think you can't ignore the results that you're getting. And, you know, Ernie Clement has come up, and credit to him, like, he's looked really good. He's knocked a few hits. He's moved guys along. He looks pretty comfortable at shortstop, too. And, you know, I think with Espinal, he hasn't had the greatest year. He's had some good games and he's had he's come up key a few times and again he has hit lefties well and so you're probably fine with having him in the lineup against the lefty and you like generally you like his defense I mean I know it hasn't been as sharp this year as in years past but you know he does have the track record and I think shortstop honestly is probably his best position um so I think you feel good either way but I honestly will think that it will be yeah the matchups are going to play into it but I really think the Blue Jays are at the point where you just need to ride who's hitting well. And if Ernie Clement gives you a really good game, I don't know that you'll be that tempted to pull him out of the lineup, even if it's a matchup that doesn't necessarily go as much in his favor as another guy. Uh, Caitlin, I'm going to ask you something about the shortstop position that I should have checked with you before if you actually got a chance to talk about, um, but I'm going to put you on the spot anyway. How thrilled was Kevin Biggio to get a little bit of a rep at shortstop? I, I know John Schneider said it's something Kevin's been asking for for years. I did not actually get to talk to Kevin about this, but I'm sure he, knowing Kevin, he was probably just happy to help the team in any way that he could. And that's probably what he would say, but he probably thought it was fun. I mean, he's a guy that you could presumably maybe by the end of his career, he could play everywhere. Has he got a center field rep yet? I'm sure he has. It it feels like probably in it, like there was a, there was a stretch there where they were playing Otto Lopez in center field and everything. He'd never even played the, yeah. So 2020 cabin actually started two games in center field. There you go. So like you're going to, he's going to have a a baseball reference page that is going to have him basically at every position other than catcher. Probably. We we got to get him one of those Ernie Clement. You're coming in as the pitcher reps too. Like Er Ernie Clement has done everything except catcher in center field. Biggio's (laughs) done everything except catcher and pitcher. And I, I I know that Dalton Varsho is the emergency catcher here, but I I really do feel like there would be like Jays are up by 20 in a game and Kirk and Jansen are both out like Clement and Biggio doing rock, paper, scissors for who gets to add catcher to their, to their baseball reference page. Right. And then whoever doesn't get catcher is the pitcher. So they'll just form their new battery. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so taking it a more serious bent here, Caitlin, the Jays are able to play nine games in a row against last place teams. Uh, we know that that doesn't mean a lot if you're not playing good baseball. You wrote at the Athletic coming out of this last series, uh, they need a red hot September and every game is a must win. We know what that looks like in the four game set. When Texas is here coming out of that stretch, you can imagine every one of those games feels like and is managed like it's a playoff game because... They're basically, you know, play-in games at at that point, given where the wild card is right now. What does that level of urgency look like over a nine-game stretch against bad teams where, you know, ideally you're not even in those late-game scenarios and things like that, and and you maybe don't want these guys over-pressing against a Chris Flexen on the mound or or a a tie block or or a tie block, rather, something like that. Like, how does urgency differ for you against lesser opponents versus, you know, hey, that Texas series that coming up where everyone knows what that looks like. 
Yeah, I think, you know, I like what Chris Bassett was saying about it the other day. He was talking about it, these being must-win games and that the urgency is there. But he was kind of talking about sort of embracing it and not letting the anxiety or the nervousness of it overwhelm you, but rather letting that anxious feeling kind of fuel you in the sense of, like, this is where you want to be. There's a lot of teams that are not playing for anything anymore. And all the teams that you're going to be facing over the next uh, 10 days are not playing for anything anymore. And so, yes, is it stressful? Yes, are games very important and you want to win them, but kind of embrace that challenge and don't let it overwhelm you. Like let that feeling kind of fuel you. And I think that's how the Blue Jays have to approach this is, yes, you need to play your best. Yes, you need to win, but you need to sort of embrace it and say, this is fun. Like this is exciting. This is fun. It's not, you don't want to go into it and say, this is overwhelming. I can't handle this pressure. You want to really embrace it and say, this is why we play baseball. This is what it means. And they're competitive guys. They know they want to win. They know how to win. And I've gone back to a few times that, you know, the Blue Jays were in a pretty similar spot really at this point last year. I think they were going into a series against Pittsburgh at this time last year, and they basically had to win it. And they went, and I think they swept it, and then they went to Baltimore, and they won, I think, three or four in Baltimore. They played really well, and it was at the time that Bo kind of just exploded, and he's been hitting ever since then. And I think that they need to sort of draw on that experience and say, well, yeah, you don't have Bo in the lineup right now, but You've been there. I think at that point it was a little different. I think they were still in a wild card position, but they were like in the third wild card position and they were kind of hanging on to it. And they really were trying to aim for, um, they were both aiming to kind of put the Baltimore Orioles away. And then they were also trying to get to that first wild card and get home field, which they all obviously ultimately did. And so this year it's a little different in that probably not aiming for that first one. I mean, in theory, they're all still aiming for it because that's how they have to think. Honestly, they're probably still aiming for the division, even though it's really not going to happen, but that's just like how they think. But I think that, again, you can draw on that experience and say like we were, you know, our backs were against the wall or whatever cliche you want to use. And they were able to get it done and they were able to come out of that stretch uh, with a winning record. And they really had a good month of September overall. They did it the year before when they were again playing for their playoff lives. It didn't work out in the end, but they, they put themselves in among the best spots they could have and uh, just didn't work out. Yeah. And I think that's a helpful last year's a helpful example, right? You come out and you have this stretch to start September against Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Texas, Baltimore was obviously good, but Pittsburgh and Texas were toward the bottom of the standings. You win eight of nine to start that month. And you know, momentum's only, like momentum exists until, you know, your starting pitcher the next day gives up a first inning home run or something like that. But they were able to carry that over into good series against Tampa Bay, that one where they took three out of five against them in that that weird five game set. They then took another series off of Baltimore. So so things can build that way. Um, if we look, it's maybe a little too early to look at, you know, every single day matchups and things like that. But because that Texas series is coming up, Caitlin, Texas during this stretch is playing Minnesota who are not particularly good, but at least lead a division and have something to play for. Then they play Houston who obviously will have, they'll be treating those Texas games as must win as well uh, in their kind of battle in the AL West and the, the AL wildcard. And then Texas gets Oakland, whereas the blue Jays get three consecutive last place teams here. Um, What do you think a a realistic, target is for this nine game stretch. I don't want to say you have to win nine in a row and be on a 10 game win streak, but you know, you look ahead, you look across at what Texas is doing. 
as much as you want to keep your eyes on your own page and just play good baseball, what do you think a reasonable target is, if not for the Blue Jays in the room, for, for us sitting here talking? Like, 7-2 and two feel good coming out of that? Does that feel like a missed opportunity? Is 6-3 and three enough? How do you feel about this nine-game stretch overall? I think 7-2 and two is the bare minimum, honestly. Like, I, I could give them the opportunity to lose one in Colorado, you chalk it up to the altitude, getting used to tough road trip, blah, 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 tough to sweep teams on the road. Okay. Two or three there. But I think from that point, like you have to sweep Oakland. Like I, you know, I know they're still a major league team and I have some talent on that team, but you gotta, you gotta sweep Oakland. You gotta sweep one of Oakland and the Royals. I think you, and I wrote this in my piece and John Schneider basically said it like, at this point, like winning series is like the bare minimum, but at some point you do have to start sweeping teams. I don't know if it's going to be good enough to just go two or three, two or three, two, two or three. I mean, it's, it's good enough if, if the Texas Rangers lose the next six games in a row, then you're like, okay, that's fine. But like, so it's hard to answer that question exactly because you don't know what is going to happen elsewhere. Like if Minnesota sweeps Texas and then the, the uh, Astros sweep Texas, then they've lost six in a row. And then the fact that you've won at least six, of your last nine games looks pretty good. And so I think that it kind of depends, but I think the Blue Jays should just be aiming to sweep all of these if they can. But I, I think going eight and one is totally doable. I think going nine and oh is doable, <laughs> but I think going eight and one is doable and seven and two. So it feels like the absolute bare minimum they should do to really take advantage of this stretch. It's not about just handling the stretch. It's about taking advantage of it. I agree with you. It's uh, you're not going to get a nine game set easier than this the rest of the way or in any part of any season in baseball history. Like how often do you get to face three teams in a row with a 310 winning percentage unless you play in the AL Central and that's just your entire season schedule. Uh, Caitlin McGrath, hope you have a, a great weekend. Glad you don't have to travel for these ones. I will talk to you again next week and see you down at the park for the Royal Series. Awesome. Thank you. See you later. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic, uh, a great piece up there coming out of this last series and setting up this nine game stretch ahead about what urgency looks like against lesser teams and what it means for the Jays to say every game is a must win when obviously mathematically not every game is a must win. But if you're looking at, you know, target records and things like that, uh, 90 games, 90 wins maybe gets you to a wild card spot. You know, it's a little different if four of those wins come against Texas versus if zero of those wins come against Texas. But if 90 wins is roughly your target, that means 17 and 11 the rest of the way. So um, you don't want to hand if you are allotting yourself 11 losses or 10 losses or nine losses. You don't want to be giving those away to the Rockies and the A's and the Royals. We're going to take a break. We come back. We'll talk to Doug Fox, uh, one of our regular guests who's all over the Blue Jays farm system. He's got the the future Blue Jays newsletter at, at DM Fox on Substack. We'll get the skinny on Spencer Horwitz and what he can give for this team. We'll take a look at Ricky Tiedemann's latest start where he struck out 11 batters and only recorded 11 outs. Uh, we'll talk about some of the hottest names in the system as well, including a uh, fun undersized starting pitcher who's now at double A and Michael Dominguez, uh, Alan Roden, who should probably be on everyone's radar right now. And uh, Miguel Geraldo, who had kind of fallen off the, are we even considering him a prospect list and has been one of the hottest hitters in the system over the last 30 days or so. Uh, all that's next. Last Spencer Horwitz talk coming up with Doug Fox as Jay's talk plus continues on the sports at radio network and sports at three Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is Renee Rapp. And true story, I once almost lived in Colorado. Was very, very close to that. Uh, I don't know if the song is accurate, though, that life would be better if you lived there. Uh, life is better for Spencer Horwitz today because he's up in Colorado. It's not official yet, but we've had multiple people reporting, including our own Ben Nicholson-Smith, that Spencer Horwitz will be added to the Toronto Blue Jays roster today as part of September roster expansion. Uh, you only get two extra guys these days. The days of Brian Haroleman uh, being the fourth catcher and spending a month on the roster but not actually getting into the game are behind us. Spencer Horwitz figures to get into some games, even if it's just as a high leverage pinch hitter. Uh, Doug Fox joins us now to talk about that. He's at DM Fox 705 on Twitter. You can check out his sub stack at DM Fox there for your future Blue Jays newsletter. Doug, good morning. I uh, haven't talked to you since before your vacation. How you doing, buddy? Blake, I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, life in the mountains is better, I, I do have to tell you. And talking just about the good old days of the expanded 40 man rosters when you were mentioning that and i know i'm dating myself here but i am old enough to remember when a young man wearing number 62 i believe pinch ran for the the, the expos in 1979 by the name of tim rain wow and that's yeah that that's going back and that uh, those days are gone unfortunately where we get to see these really uber prospects before they're really uh, ready for big time but they coming in for a late-season bench role. Uh, Doug, I would have thought that if there were a Tim Raines type, and and I'm certainly not drawing this comparison, but if the Jays were going to add someone who was just a pinch runner, I kind of thought maybe we'd get a look at Cam Eden from the Buffalo Bisons, one of the best base stealers uh, in minor league baseball. The Jays instead, and we're going to talk about Spencer Hortz in a a moment here, the Jays instead, uh, for the pinch running and for the shortstop insurance, instead went with Mason McCoy. Did, Did that one surprise you a little bit, just given the number of options on that Bison's team? It, it certainly was a surprise, but uh, I, I think the, uh, the recall of Clement uh, a couple of days earlier just speaks to the fact that the, at this point in the season, with things maybe slipping away, and Blue Jays were looking more for the veteran presence. And so I think that's uh, that's what McCoy brings, and maybe a stabilizing element. But yes, I was I was surprised that, uh, that Eden, well, I'm sure he did get consideration, but then the whole 40-man roster issue comes into play as well. So that's that's likely why we're not seeing him at this point. And McCoy is a defensive up-the-middle versatility because the Blue Jays love their fast twitch up-the-middle guys. <laughs> they sure do. They also like giving slower twitch guys chances to play every single position at AAA just in case. Uh, as part of that... We have seen Spencer Horowitz, who is now going to be on the major league roster. Uh, we He's primarily a first base and DH prospect. The bad is what is getting him here. The bad is what's interesting. We have seen the, the Bisons, though, try him at second base for three games, try him in left field a little bit. Uh, how has that side of the experiment gone based on what you've seen or, or who you've been able to talk to around the Jays? Uh, give them credit for trying and, and give Horowitz, who, whose work ethic is lauded throughout the organization, uh, give him credit as well. Um, but, I mean, he's not even going to make people forget about Melky Cabrera. I ah. think when it comes to comes to the, the outfield spot, he's a bat-first player. And, and, you know, as we know, there are two guys ahead of him when it comes to his primary position. But I, I was reading just yesterday advice from an old scout, and that is never walk away from a legitimate bat. And I think that explains why... Horowitz wasn't dealt at the uh, the trade deadline, even with a bit of a 40-man crunch, and why he's a Blue Jay right now. That's a legitimate bat that's hit close to 400 with some pot this summer. And if there's one thing the Blue Jays need right now, it's a guy who can drive the ball. 
So in Spencer Horowitz's profile here, there's obviously the contact approach. He has a 337 average, and that's been even higher lately. A big part of that is that he doesn't, He's not like an Ernie Clement level of never striking out. He strikes out about 15% of the time, but he walks even more than that. Now, I know there's some thought that there's a bit of a gamification of the automatic balls and strike system on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and the challenge system on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But Horvitz is a guy who posted strong walk rates at AA and AAA last year, who posted really strong walk rates walk rates at high A in 2021. Um, now, he's always been a little old for these levels, so there's some of, hey, maybe he's just advanced uh, in that regard as well. But how much do you see his ability to negotiate balls from strikes and stay alive with two strikes. How well is that figure to translate to the major league level? I think he's going to continue to have quality at that at the major league level. And that's, that's just such an underrated skill for so many reasons, but I, I fully suspect will he, will he walk more than he strikes out of the big leagues? Possibly not, but he has an excellent knowledge of the strikes on it. And guys in AAA who are using the challenge system, seem to know the strike zone better than the umpires do. And, and his, his his knowledge is probably uh, the best in the system. So I think he's going to continue to see a lot of pitches, wear, help wear pitches down, even in a limited role, give his teammates a chance to see what pitches are throwing. I think it's an approach that's going to translate well to the uh, to the big leagues. And just looking at his numbers uh, before before we talked this morning, the, the name, the comp that kept running through my head was Lyle Overbeck who carved out a pretty decent career, maybe not a guy with a lot of pop, but I see a lot of similarities there. Hey, that's not a that's not a bad guy to be compared to. That's a guy who's stuck around the majors for like 14 or 15 years. And yeah, 22 yeah. home runs doesn't maybe, you know, get you too, too excited at the first base position. But anytime a guy can carve out a 14, 15 year career, have a couple of two, two and a half win seasons, uh, you know, that's a that's a nice piece to be able to find and especially to develop in your system. So that'll be fun to see how that comes along. I wanted to ask you about two other bats. There's obviously the Ricky Tiedemann conversation we'll have in a minute here, but there are two bats at the double a level that I'm curious to get your take on. And one is a guy you and I have talked about before. It's Alan Roden. He's 23 years old, a third round pick last year. And we kind of anticipated he'd move quickly through the system since he was a more advanced uh, prospect and, you know, was a little overage as a 22 year old in Dunedin last year, but he is not only, been competent getting bumped to double a midway through this year he has joined the new hampshire fisher cats and in 33 games hit for more power than he had in the lower levels of the minors if we adjust for league and park factors his wrc plus is even higher than it was at high a ball he's a guy who seems to just be continuing to get better what do you like about Roden's offensive profile and, and you know how how confident are you that unlike a horwitz he can probably carve out a, a corner outfield role for a little while yeah, uh, first off, he is one of the better defensive outfielders in the in the Blue Jays system. He has the arm to play right field, um, and and I think that's a definite plus in his favor. He he's a guy. It's just really interesting to see what his season has been like. He, you know, he he had decent numbers earlier in the year with Vancouver, which made you go okay, and and you know maybe there's going to be some regression, but he has just continued to hit. And I think you know a, a little bit similar profile in a way to Horowitz, where it's. Uh, it's maybe a little bit um, hit over power right now, and I don't have his numbers in front of me. So you mentioned the park adjusted. I don't know how much that little porch in New Hampshire has benefited him hmm. in his time there. But he's, he's also kind of evolving into this prototypical 
2020's leadoff hitter, where it's you know it's not necessarily a speed guy. It's it's more of that that hit over power guy who's got the gap power who gets on base. Uh, be very interesting to see. It's t- it's obviously not his time just yet, and the Blue Jays are, are going to continue to take their time with him. But maybe a year from now, he's a guy that we're talking about more in terms of the big league picture. So one of his teammates with uh, with New Hampshire is someone who at one point was. Not a huge buzzy prospect, but an interesting name at least. And that's Miguel Geraldo, who plays primarily at second base uh, for that team. He's seen a little bit of uh, third base and shortstop in his minor league career as well. But this year, full-time second baseman there. Um, He was, I mean, he was out of the mix enough that he went unprotected in the Rule 5 this past winter and didn't have the best of starts of the season. Still a lot of strikeout in the profile. He's actually very counter to most of the Blue Jays' middle infield prospects because he doesn't walk a ton. He strikes out. Out a lot and he actually has some power uh he has been one of the hottest hitters in the system over the last month or so um has Geraldo been able to show you enough that he he's back on the radar for you or do you need to see a little bit more process underneath the good results he's had the last month on the one hand i certainly would like to see see more because say you know, for a bat first player he certainly struggled at the plate um, he is not a good player defensively, has a long way to go before he's a big league defender, even at second. Uh, he doesn't look like he's changed his mechanics. Um, and I am having some conversations very soon with people in the Blue Jays organization, so it'll just be interesting to see. But obviously the plan this year was maybe to try to get him to, to improve that strike zone judgment, maybe use the whole field a little bit more, which I think he's doing. Uh, but I think he's just having better at that. He's, uh, he's seeing the ball better. He's driving the ball more often. And, and yeah, if, if we're, if we're seeing in the next year, if we're seeing the continued production, then maybe he's a guy, you know, he was regarded as one of the better bats in, uh, I think it was the 2018 IFA class that he was part of. So, you know, prospects, prospects take time. Five years is a bit extreme, but he's a guy who's maybe, maybe kind of worked his way into contention. Don't know if he's a 40 man guy at this point, um, because I don't know if, if, if big league teams would be willing to risk a guy with his profile but it's really good to see a guy who's maybe starting to figure things out finally. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the defense at second base. This is a guy who's listed at five nine two hundred, which uh, you know, as someone who's five ten and around that weight, you know, I, I have a, an idea of what that looks like. From one undersized guy on that New Hampshire team to another, though, let's pivot to the pitching side. Uh, Michael Dominguez is listed at five ten one seventy five. That's not the body type we tend to think of with starting pitching prospects. That's more of a of a relief. If anything, he got the bump to double a five starts ago as part of the juggling when Sam Robertson, and Adam Kloffenstein were, were outbound and he's been pretty damn good at double a the strikeout rate is up around 35% still some issues with, you know, walks and home runs and things like that. Uh, but what has Michael Dominguez done this year and has he risen up your kind of internal starting pitching prospect board? Well, that, uh, I think that you take a look at Dominguez and that 175 pounds must be three-quarters of that must be from the waist down because <laughs> he has a really thick lower half, which is actually obviously a, an advantage to a pitcher. He's a guy, and, and I wrote about this and I tweeted about this, and it's, uh, it's a reminder that, that development is not a linear process and that you know, we, we so want prospects to come out of the gate in April and, and, and to be showing us that they're, you know, they're top 100 material or whatever. But what we have to keep in mind is that there's a development plan for every player in the organization. There are things that they're working on because the minor leagues are something of a, of a lab and they're experimenting with things. We know Aurelvis, they were getting to go to the opposite field in April while his numbers were so poor. 
but Dominguez was a guy last offseason. Uh, several people uh, said to me in conversations I had throughout the organization, they pointed out to his maturity, which uh, I, I think is baseball talk for he's learned to handle adversity a little bit better. And more importantly, he's taken his whole conditioning, fitness, strength routine, especially in between starts, a lot more seriously. And so it's, you know, he's, He's timing this perfectly. He's moving up the radar, and, and with Klopfenstein and Roberts gone, there, he certainly don't know where I would rank him right now, and I'm going to start to think about that in the coming weeks. But, you know, he's worked his way into the top 20 conversation. He's Rule 5 eligible this fall, and I'm thinking he's a, he's a fastball slider change guy, but if, the, if an organization wanted to pair him down to two pitches, uh, he's got a 95-mile-an-hour fastball that moves, and he's got a short arm stroke, which makes it difficult for right-handed hitters to pick up. This is a guy you could see in a big league bullpen for a team maybe that's, that's not going to contend next year. So he's risen up the ranks, and I think enough that the Blue Jays have some thinking to do about him after the season. Yeah, that's a, it's a good problem to have, a 40-man crunch all the time, of course. But yeah, you have to project ahead to what other teams might think of a guy and how they might change his usage. Uh, someone who will be a no question to the 40 man, probably well before he's rule five eligible is Ricky Tiedemann. He's also a part of that double a rotation. He's made four starts here since kind of getting shut down and ramping back up at Clom- complex league and a ball. Um, the results have been a little mixed. You know, he's walked a couple guys. He, he's had some poor defense behind him at times. He also in his last outing struck out, 11 batters in three and two thirds innings. The quick math there, uh, that is all 11 outs coming by way of the strikeout. How did Tiedemann look to you last time out? Tiedemann looked dominant. Uh, the first inning was a little shaky, and, and I think you can partially pin that on uh, the four runs that his, uh, his teammates put up in the top of the first. So we just had trouble hitting spots and trouble getting ahead of hitters. But uh, come the second inning, it was the Tiedemann of, of old through the next three next three innings. And I think the decision the Blue Jays are shortly going to have to make. I think he was at 60 pitches in his last outing. Maybe they'll bump him up to 70 in the next one. And I think that, you know, with, a, with a, uh, three weeks and a bit left in the AAA season, uh, I think the question is, do they maybe consider sending him up to Buffalo for one or two mm. starts just to see how he does at that level? Or... Do they just continue to build him up at double A and then send him to Arizona? I think he's probably a lock, depending on his health, for the Arizona Fall League. So it'll be very interesting with that to see uh, to see where things are going. But I think uh, we, we certainly had about two months' worth of concern for Tiedemann, but I think he erased a lot of doubts with that start because the double A hitters were completely overmatched against him. And that's Yeah, which is, uh, you know, it's always fun to see. And it's worth remembering, too, uh, for anyone who, you know, look at Tiedemann year. And, and yeah, it's uh, it's not quite what we expected because we were talking about him at the start of the year as maybe someone who could help down the stretch. He's only gotten 30 and a third innings in uh, in actual, you know, uh, affiliated ball. But Arizona Fall League ahead potentially and, you know, big, big results so far. Uh, Doug, quickly before I let you go, uh, this is putting you on the spot a little bit. But is there anyone else in the org, especially, you know, more off radar? guys that you want to see at Arizona Fall League since teams, you know, it's not just about more innings. It's also about sometimes you have a guy go there and try a new position or or try something different out. Uh, Who are you looking ahead to? Uh, We're about a month early here, but uh, I'll ask you anyway. Aralvis. Yeah. Without a doubt. um, He certainly has improved his pitch recognition. Uh, He's using the whole field a little bit more. He's not quite as pull happy. Still has some things defensively to work on, but let's uh, 
Uh, I know people were clamoring for his call up uh, this, this past week, past 10 days, but not for a guy with a month of AAA experience. It just wasn't going to happen. But let's see how he does against the elite pitching that you're going to find in the Arizona Fall League. I'm, I'm really thinking that he's going to be joining Tatum in there and be very interested to see how he does. Well, we'll have to uh, all get our Arizona Fall League uh, MILB TV subscription or whatever if they're going to have the top pitching prospect and the top hitting prospect uh, on the same roster down there. Uh, Doug Fox, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. Keep up all the great work at DM Fox on Substack and at DM Fox 705 on Twitter. I appreciate it, man. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Blake. Doug Fox, uh, DM Fox 705 on Twitter, DM Fox on Substack, where you can subscribe to his future Blue Jays newsletter, indispensable kind of biweekly updates, sometimes even weekly updates on what's going on around the minor leagues. Uh, Doug does a great job not only getting eyes on a lot of those prospects, but talking to people within the organization and scouts around baseball and things like that. Uh, So pretty indispensable resource there. Uh, Jays who are already major league ready, including Spencer Horowitz, who we anticipate is coming up tonight, uh, will be in action against the Colorado Rockies. It's Hyunjin Ryu against Chris Flexen. Little programming note that show Ali will have you for Jay's talk pregame 8 to 8.30. He'll also have you for Jay's talk after the game. A bit of a weird start time series here. 8.40 tonight, 8.10 tomorrow, 3.10 on Sunday. Uh, So make sure you're locked in on that. It's Ryu against Flexen tonight. It's Kikuchi against Ty Block tomorrow. And then it's Kevin Gosman against a TBD on Sunday. That TBD on straight rotation would be Austin Gomber, but some of the speculation with that still being a TBD is, well, maybe there's a roster expansion guy coming here. Maybe they just want to get a few bullpen arms, uh, extended innings and extended look there. This Rockies team is firmly playing for the future and continuing to start mid 30 starters while it helps eat innings uh, doesn't get you a good look at guys we'll see how that one plays out uh, we'll talk to Susie Hunter here in a little bit as well as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360 Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays and NFL the JD Bunkus podcast subscribe and download the show on Apple Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. I was planning on playing Susie Hunter in with that Taylor Swift, but I need a minute because Canada and Brazil are tied with three and a half minutes left, and I'm having a wee bit of a meltdown trying to keep an eye on this game uh, while I do this show. That's over on Sportsnet, by the way. Don't want you to tune out from us here, but 57-57 with three minutes to go, and that is a very, very big game for Canada in the World Cup. Uh, So as much as I would like to... Uh, just talk about Taylor Swift uh, with our next guest. We've got to keep an eye on that game as well. Uh, Susie Hunter is that next guest of DMVR Sports. She joins us now. Uh, Susie, good morning. How are you? Oh, my gosh. Good morning, and thank you so much for playing a little Taylor for me. It was either that or I played Renee Rapp earlier, the, the Colorado song. I, I didn't know which one to go with, so I, I know you're not a Colorado uh, local originally, so I figured Taylor was the, the better move. Oh my gosh. I mean, it all would have worked, but so, so hospitable. Thank you. Uh, look, I'll be honest though. The real reason we brought you on was not to tee up this Rockies series, but it's because you've been, you know, you were tweeting the other day, slandering Anthony Volpe and the Yankees. So we need a little uh, solidarity in that because the Jays are going through it a little bit right now and looking over at the Yankees with uh with a tongue in cheek sometimes is helpful. 
Oh, my gosh. I can't believe. I cannot believe what we are seeing from the Yankees. But it's <laughs> embarrassing, and we should drag them for it. I agree. Uh, okay, so Susie Hunter, DMVR Sports. Uh, before you were at DMVR Sports, in 2021, you, and, and we'll talk about the Rockies, but I want to talk about the fact that you drove to every MLB park in 2021 as part of this thing you were doing. Um, you were vlogging it. You were raising money for the Boys and Girls Club of America. I've done, I think, 24 parks, and most of those were on road trips, but like split up, like I'll do two at this time, three at this time, things like that. Um, how was that? And I mean, how overwhelming was it, but how how awesome was that? Like, that's got to be, you know, top of the list as a, as a lifelong memory. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I, when I was living that summer, I thought, Oh, this is the summer I'm going to be talking about for the rest of my life. Uh, but yeah, it was an incredible experience. It, it takes a really long time to <laughs> drive to every ballpark, especially when you're in a pandemic and some teams like the blue Jays play in multiple ballparks. So I actually did hit <laughs> Buffalo and Toronto. Wow. So it was just, it was, it was a crazy summer. It took me forever. Um, it's not cheap. I could have put a down payment on a house instead of this, but you know what? I, I YOLO'd. I YOLO'd that summer. That very Toronto of you. Um, and look, I, I think you could probably claim to be the only person to see all 31 major league ballparks in a season because that was the only year we would have had that many. Exactly. I don't think anyone else did that that summer. I found like one other guy on social media, but I don't think he actually made it to all of them. He kind of like fell off the face of the earth. Damn, I hope he's okay. Okay, so you you've hit all of them. Um, what are we what are we talking about in terms of like a, a top three here? Like what were obviously there are some parks that lean more on the the history and nostalgia than the actual quality of the park. But um, dealer's choice here in terms of how you want to rank these. What were your favorite ones? Oh man. Um, so I, I loved, I loved Seattle and I had no idea that I was going to love it so much. Uh, Pittsburgh is amazing. Classic, amazing view, incredible ballpark. Um, I low key loved Cleveland. Okay. <laughs> it's not the most popular opinion, but like love the Cleveland ballpark. And of course, I mean, Toronto's amazing. Too, that, so. That's what I was going to ask next. And look, since you've been here, the, the Rogers center has undergone a lot of renovations more to come after this season, but like the areas to eat and drink and socialize here have improved a lot. So you might need to do uh, a second visit uh, on your trip though. Who, what were the top stadiums in terms of stadium food? Cause I know that at one point you also, you know, had a Twitter account dedicated to stadium food and stuff as well. What was top of the list in that regard? Oh my gosh. Well, it was so weird though, because when I started the road trip, like a lot of ballparks were at 50% capacity, maybe less. So some ballparks just straight up did not have any food. Like I swear when I went to Fenway and like, I've spent a lot of time at Fenway, but when I went to Fenway on this trip, um, they had just like the bare bones basics. So like some of the parks, I feel like I didn't get the full food experience. I actually did have some good food uh, at Rogers center. But, um, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Coors Field always has really good food, so that was, that was a good stop on the trip. You know, the new Texas Stadium had really good food. But, again, like, it was kind of a weird time for me, like, the ballpark foodie to be doing a trip like this. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. And, you know, my only real take on any of that is that Miami has the best coffee because they've got those little super strong Cuban coffees there. Uh, that's about it Ooh. for me in terms of uh, stadium food takes. But you mentioned Coors Field ranks pretty well. Uh, obviously, you enjoyed it so much that at the end of this trip, you're like, yeah, I'll go cover the Rockies for, for DNVR. Um, how, how has that been? Because I know you're, you're Hartford originally um, and you've only done a couple years in, in Colorado now. How's that transition been? 
Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, it's been amazing. I Well, funny enough, so I worked in Hartford. I was on TV in Hartford before that. But um, I covered the Hartford Yard Goats, the most delightful minor league team. Yard Goats. Um, oh, yeah. The Yard Goats. I know. And, uh, you know, they just happened to be the Rockies double A affiliate. So while I was covering the Yard Goats, I was like, you know what? Like, these guys are moving up to the majors pretty fast. <laughs> I want to move up to the majors too. So like, it's kind of nice because, you know, this is my, this is my second season covering the Rockies. Now this is my first major league team that I've covered, but I'm like, I've known a lot of these dudes for like seven, eight years at this point. So it kind of, it was a good transition. That's great. And so um, I, I have to ask you a couple Coors Field because obviously the Jays don't play in Coors Field very often. It's a bit of a bizarro stadium for park effects and just generally. My biggest question about Coors Field, though, is have you done I know in the off season they do like this top golf thing where you can like golf from the upper bowl. Have you done this? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. You know what? I haven't done that at Coors Field. Okay. Uh, the yard goats, funny enough, have done that in the off season too. But um, I think I was out of town when the Rockies did it last year. But it, I mean, the minor league version of it that I've done is so fun. I can't even imagine how much fun the major league course field version of it is. But yeah, those golf balls have to be flying. Yeah, what a what a way to uh, utilize drive some revenue from your ballpark in the off season. Uh, okay, so let's talk about this Rockies team, Susie. It has not been a particularly great year from a win loss perspective, uh, but that was kind of expected. That's kind of the plan with where the Rockies are and need to go. Um, where have the bright spots been, I know there are, there are a couple young players and things like that. We can, we can dive in on a little bit more, maybe some who you were at double a with, um, but where are kind of the, the silver linings or, or room for optimism for, for this Rockies team right now? Oh my gosh. Well, you hit the nail on the head right there. The only reason we wake up in the morning is to watch these young players. I'm being dramatic, hmm. but we have so much great young talent who is up here in the majors now they're figuring it out. They're not perfect. They're making mistakes. They are learning. I think our manager, Bud Black, has said it's a baptism by fire. Mm. So we all know that we're going through this really tough season, but at the same time, we have, we've got pitching prospects that are going to come up in the next couple of years. Like I'm telling you, the Rockies are going to be good in a couple of years, but right now we're just, we're going through it. And the Rockies are on an especially tough stretch right now. It certainly seems that way. And there are obviously young guys who are starting to come up now, but it's also, it's always fun that like, it feels like Charlie Blackman was on this team back when Dante Bichette was on this team. Like Charlie Blackman has just been there forever. Uh, Ryan McMahon to a lesser extent as well. Um, what, I, I mean, how have they navigated or, or if you've talked to Charlie Blackman himself, like obviously there were opportunities over the past to have traded Charlie Blackman to a contender or something like that. He's been with this franchise for so long now. I'd imagine he's a good voice for those young guys in the room. Uh, even if, you know, he's not, you know, peak 2017, Charlie Blackman at this point, how important is he still to this franchise? Oh, he's everything. He is absolutely everything. He is such a great clubhouse leader too, such a great role model for these younger players because literally no human on earth works harder than Charlie Blackman. Which is great. And, and Hey, he's got the, the cool eye black and everything like that as well, which maybe he can teach guys down the line. Um, couple of young outfielders who've come up and I'm sure picked, uh, the brain of Charlie Blackman a lot and not super young prospects, but Nolan Jones and Brenton Doyle, uh, make up two thirds of this outfield. Now, um, Miguel Toglia, again, it's an outfield of 25 year olds. So there's some upside there. Uh, I wanted to ask you specifically Brent about Brenton Doyle, because I don't know if there are listeners who are fantasy baseball players, they maybe know Brenton Doyle a little bit more than like, 
like his overall performance would suggest because he steals a lot of bases. Um, what is what is kind of the start for this young outfield been this year? And, you know, what needs to keep moving them in the, in the right direction here? Oh, my gosh. Bretton Doyle has been such an incredible addition. He is just he is wild in that outfield. He makes catches that we can't even believe. The other day from center field, he threw a guy out at home plate at more than 100 miles an hour. Oh. Just he has been so freaking good. And I just wish I wish he I wish he could hit a little more. Once he figures that out, he's going to be unstoppable because once Bretton Doyle gets on base, no base is safe. He's stealing second. He's stealing third. Like he is so freaking fast. The only piece that is missing right now is that batting average. Is that something that, you know, how does Colorado feel about that generally? I know they're near the bottom of the league in stolen bases, but that to me is probably more of like an on-base issue than a green light issue. Has Bud Black kind of empowered the, you know, a Brenton Doyle type or anyone, you know, Ezekiel Tovar pretty quick as well. Uh, If guys can get on, is there a green light here or they run a little more conservative? You know what? Um, uh, now, uh, from what Buddy said pretty recently, yeah, um, they have the green light to to go, which is great. That that's uh, you know it's yeah. a good challenge for the the Blue Jays. They handled it okay against the Reds, but you can run on you can run on this pitching staff and this catcher duo uh, sometimes. So, Susie, I mentioned Ezekiel Tovar there. He comes up to the majors at, at just twenty. 20- 20 years old last year for just a quick cup of coffee. He's been around the entire year this year. Uh, The ups and downs we'd probably expect with any young prospect, but what has, uh, you know, where's the encouragement been in his season? Uh, 15 homers, eight stolen bases, playing up the middle. Uh, There there seems like there's enough to like here, even if, you know, the the on-base ability still isn't quite there yet. Yeah, again, super young. He is figuring it out too, but he is just such a talent. And he's playing a premium position too, and uh, he's gonna—he's going to develop into such an incredible shortstop. So we can't wait for that. But you know, yeah, he's been productive, especially for such a young guy. It's so crazy to think that—I mean, this guy just turned 22. Uh, he's already a dad. He is just—he's um, his big thing though. Um, Buddy just always says like he is just—he is so confident up here. He's so comfortable up here. And that just speaks the world, um, you know, especially about a 22 year old. Seriously, having kids at 22 is having kids at 37 seems impossible to me. Having kids at 22 uh, seems particularly impossible. Um, Susie, on the pitching side, the Rockies have not turned things over to the youth movement quite as much. I think that makes sense. You want to be patient with your pitching prospects. You don't want to rush them and things like that. We'll see Chris Flexen tonight. We'll see Ty Block tomorrow. Um, neither of those guys has like unbelievable numbers. And I know in Flexen's case, they just kind of picked them up mid July. How much for these guys is just, Hey, soak up some innings for us. So we don't have to rush the pitching prospects. Uh, yeah, that's everything. Innings, 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 because we, uh, um, I mean, this Rockies team lost like five starters in the span of three weeks earlier this season, we have no arms whatsoever. So one thing we need, like, please, can we get a pitcher that can just eat up some innings? Uh, but, you know, Ty Block's been pretty good, actually, uh, the, his past couple of starts. And he was he was a reliever earlier this season. He got DFA'd earlier this season. I think he got DFA'd more than once in the past year. But he's just been around, and now he's a starter and eating up innings and actually doing pretty well. So it, it's good to see. But, yeah, we've got some uh, – I think all we did at the trade deadline was get pitchers. 
And yeah. someday we'll see them, but you know, not anytime soon. Yeah, I know. I know a lot of those guys are are a little far away. Um, Susie, do we know yet who who the Rockies are adding with roster expansion today? Has that been has that been out there or speculated on at all? Oh my goodness! Listen, it's nine a.m. out here in Colorado. Right. We all just woke up. I don't think we know yet. I okay. don't think we know yet, but um, I'm sure we'll find out soon. In Toronto, it's been this funny thing where, like, we've all known, um, and like the manager John Schneider has even like laid it on incredibly thick describing who was coming up without saying who's coming up. I guess the only thing was that weird waiver process um, yesterday. So we, if we look ahead uh, to later, there, there's a TBD on the probable pitchers for Colorado on Sunday. That would normally be Austin Gomber's spot. Uh, is something is something up with Gomber? They're just like considering the options and things like that. You know what? His last start, uh, so Gomber's been a guy who's been eating up innings, but his mm-hmm. last start, he was only out for two and two-thirds uh, with back soreness, mm. um, which apparently we didn't know. This was news to us, but apparently he's been experiencing this for a couple of months, but it just wasn't working um, the other night during his last start, so they took him out. So we don't know if he is going to make that start or not. It's still, it's still very TBD. Well, that's that's okay. It gives us something to look forward to on uh, on Sunday. The mystery of it, maybe a bullpen day or something like that. Uh, okay, I want to turn it to a couple of general Rockies questions. I know you tweeted about this the other day. DNVR Sports has been doing their top twenty five greatest Colorado athletes. Larry Walker only came in at number ten. I gotta ask about this anti Canadian bias. Oh, my gosh. Well, I will say, us on the Rockies beat, we did petition for him to be a little higher. I would have put him at number three. Last, uh, we had to collaborate with freaking company of people. So uh, I I agree. I think he should be a little bit higher. Uh, no, no Canadian shade, I promise. Yeah, I mean, Jamal Murray's down at 25, and I know that he hasn't been there a long time, but he just won a championship. That's, uh, that's not only Canadian disrespect, that is disrespect to my hometown as well. I uh, can't stand uh, for this. So I know, Susie, that you were looking forward to seeing Bo Bichette this weekend because of the Dante Bichette connection, things like that. He is on the IL, but what else are you excited about uh, with seeing the, this Blue Jays team for a couple games? Oh, my gosh. You know, I actually, I low-key love this Blue Jays team. And I will say, so when I worked in Hartford, um, the Hartford Yard Goats very often play against the um, Blue Jays affiliate, the Fisher Cats. Mm -hmm. So I saw, I got to see Vlad Jr. as a prospect so many times every season that he was there, which wasn't very long, but still. Uh, So I'm a big, big Vladdy fan. So right. I'm really excited to see him absolutely wreck stuff up at Coors Field. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll see. He hasn't had, I mean, he had a couple home runs this week. He hasn't had the best of seasons. Maybe the Coors Field uh, elements can can help him out there a little bit. For any Jays fan who doesn't know, Coors Field has obviously played very hitter-friendly over the years. There's some other weird stuff about the park as well, Susie. What, what should we be anticipating here when it comes to, hey, there's a little bit of you can't predict ball when it comes to Coors Field? That's just, that's the thing, you know, like the weather's so weird, the wind patterns get weird, but mostly it's that thin air that just makes the ball travel. And I swear, I always say this about Coors Field, every night is an opportunity to see the weirdest baseball game of your life. I swear something weird is always happening. It it certainly seems that way. And uh, it's, I have heard this, I have not met him or, or them myself. Is it true that Dinger is a bit of a weirdo as well? No, Dinger's like a very normal mascot. Okay, I, I don't. 
I don't know if you're covering for him or I've just heard the wrong stuff, but I've heard some things about Dinger. That's all. Well, you know what? I think um, uh, there's a, um, a group of people who were kids when Dinger got introduced. And the way they introduced Dinger was a little scary. Like, they rolled a giant egg out onto the field and had him, like, hatch out of it. And he was <laughs> naked. And it was just, it was, you got to look it up on YouTube. It was really wild. But uh, I think there's a group of people who are just like, oh, I'm traumatized from childhood because of Digger. That makes sense. I mean, I know they're probably going for like the dinosaur baby from that show vibe. But yeah, having a a mascot hatch live in front of everyone is is a tough one. We'll see a little bit of Dinger this weekend. We'll see the Colorado Rockies. Uh, Susie Hunter, thank you so much for taking the time out this morning. Hope you enjoy uh, this Blue Jays series. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Susie Hunter of DNVR Sports. Uh, Give her a follow at the the Susie Hunter. Uh, We'll continue to tee up this series. It's Ryu against Flexen tonight. Uh, I made it through that entire interview without swearing or melting down that Canada is going to lose this game to Brazil. They are down by five right now with 14 seconds left. Iago Santos is just giving them the business down the stretch here. Canada with a key shot clock violation. I'm getting DMs about the FIBA officiating, but to be completely honest, I have to rewatch this game after when I can actually lock in and be paying attention. But Canada is going to lose this game, which sets up a Sunday scenario against Spain where the winner will move on. And that's pretty much it. So a must, must, must win game. Uh, No, no caveats there. It is a must win on Sunday uh, against Spain. Dylan Brooks just dunked with the quick two, but they're down six with 10 seconds to go. Uh, So I guess it's still possible. They could tie this thing up. He got the end one there. Uh, We'll keep an eye on it here. But in the event that Canada doesn't pull off a miraculous final 10 seconds here, um, they're headed for a game Sunday, 9.30 a.m. on Sportsnet, where if they win, they will make the quarterfinals. If they lose, they won't. And they'll very likely not qualify for the Olympics if they don't make the quarterfinals, given how the rest of the brackets look right now. Um, There are still a lot of things that can happen Sunday, a lot of odd tiebreaker scenarios and point differentials and things like that. Uh, But for the most part, they are in a spot where you've got to at least make the quarters to have a shot at the Olympics because only two teams from the Americas will auto qualify. Everyone else will have to play those last chance Olympic qualifying tournaments that every Canadian basketball fan is just beyond sick of at this point. Uh, We'll take a a break here because I want to watch these last 11 seconds and see if Canada uh, can pull out the unlikely comeback here. Um, When we come back on the other side, uh, we'll talk to Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and the Effectively Wild podcast. Uh, Great, great, great podcast up over at Fangraphs uh, about the... You know, about everything. The Effectively Wild podcast is a must-listen anyway, but they had Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie and the Postal Service on to talk about his Mariners fandom uh, this week. That's a great listen. Uh, We'll talk to Meg Rowley about that, about this Mariners push, about who got stronger with all these waiver claims and things like that, and we'll set up kind of the weekend and the week ahead around the American League playoff race. All that's next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, I didn't intend for that song cue to be 
this depressing when it comes to Canada basketball. That's I Will Follow You Into the Dark. That was supposed to be more about Meg Rowley having Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie on the Effectively Wild podcast. But instead, it's going to, uh, you know, be about this Canada-Brazil game, which uh, the there are 0.4 seconds left. That's how long the last 10 seconds took, by the way, of this game that you, uh, we went to break and the game was still going, but Canada just lost officially 69 to 65 to Brazil. That sets up a game on Sunday, 9 30 AM on Sportsnet, where if Canada beats Spain, they will advance to the quarterfinals. If they lose to Spain, they're done here. And the way it works in the second round is teams nine through 16 will be, classified they call it or seeded nine through 16 based on your record and your point differential so not only would a lost sunday mean canada isn't going to the quarterfinals but also drops you to three to two it hurts your point differential so you're standing when it comes to uh seeding all of that stuff would take a ding as well canada would still stand to probably finish ninth or tenth in that regard as long as they don't get blown out um but that is not what the goal was that is not what the expectation was and it's certainly not the best case scenario as far as olympic qualification goes because again only the top two teams from the america's region will auto qualify for the olympics here and one of the dominican or puerto rico will probably emerge from group i although that group is also four teams tied right now um the usa has already punched their ticket on to the next round and then one of or potentially both canada and brazil could go on so all four america's teams are playing win and you're in games on sunday it's uh it's uh, gonna be a crazy sunday and we'll have it for you on sportsnet this is not the situation canada wanted to be in but that spain team is a team that canada can beat beat an exhibition has been a little better than for this tournament but no way around that this was a disappointing outcome against Brazil. Credit to them. Uh, they played well. They hit their threes. Oh, they didn't hit their threes. Rather, uh, Canada played them as if they were hitting their threes and were really aggressive on the line. But really, this got done. Uh, every time they missed the three, they scooped up the offensive rebound. Uh, big, big game for our pal Bruno Caboclo. 19 points, 13 rebounds, three blocks. Uh, tough one. For Canada, we'll pocket the Canada talk uh, for now. Again, that game is Sunday at 9.30 a.m. on Sportsnet. It is a must-win, do-or-die, win-and-go-home, whatever. However you want to phrase it up, Canada moves on. If they win, uh, they are out. If they do not. Pretty big game, right? Uh, not quite as big a game. The Toronto Blue Jays against Colorado Rockies tonight. Hyunjin Ryu against Chris Flex, and that one's for 8.40 at 8.40 for you on uh, Sportsnet and on the Sportsnet Radio Network. The Blue Jays are in a position where even a nine-game set against last-place teams feel like must-win because they're two and a half games back in the wildcard race. Now, we thought initially that they were competing with Seattle and Houston. Seattle has been so hot lately, though, that they're now competing with Texas and Houston. Someone who knows the Seattle team well and knows exactly the type of podcast I would want to tune into well is Meg Rowley. She's the managing editor at Fangraphs, co-host of Effectively Wild. Uh, Meg, good morning. And how cool was it to have Ben Gibbard of Death Cab and the Postal Service on the podcast? <laughs> it was great. Uh, thanks for having me. And we're so happy that uh, the Mariners managed to pull out a win because I was joking with both Ben Gibbard and Ben Lindbergh that if they had lost another game to the A's, I don't know if we would have been able to have him back for a while. He might have jinxed them. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one, and, and you know you don't want to hang that all 
on Ben Gibbard, but like a lot of that, a lot of, as much as we love Ben, a lot of that music is depressing. And sometimes I wonder if, <laughs> if you're a big Mariners fan and most of what you make is depressing music, you know, does that bleed in to the Mariners? Instead, I think we're headed for, uh, you know, some Mariners positivity here. Uh, they have been maybe the hottest team in baseball over the last month, month and a half. Uh, what's happening with this Mariners team? Meg, how, how excited are you uh, about the run they've been on and their chances here uh, of locking up a playoff spot? Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, going into the month of July, I think they were 10 back for first place in the West. They were under 500. They were barely hanging on to a playoff spot. You know, they were looking at the deadline and and traded their closer, Paul Seawall, to the Arizona Diamondbacks. So it, it felt like uh, the folks in Seattle maybe thought that their season wasn't headed in a positive direction. And then you look at how they played really since July 1st, you know, they've been incandescent. And I think that the pitching was always solid in Seattle. They've really established themselves as a good pitching development team. Um, their starters, even with some losses and some young guys having to come in and fill innings were, were playing really well, but they were in a position where, if the pitching wasn't perfect, they were in a tough spot because they just weren't getting uh, good production from their offense. And then all of their bats seemed to wake up simultaneously, led um, sort of most notably by Julio Rodriguez, who since July 1st is hitting 360, 413, 597. Oof. He has a, a, a 180 WRC+, which is a, a metric that tries to adjust offense for for park and league and and whatnot he has 11 home runs 17 stolen bases um so you know he has really turned it on and and sort of come out of what had been um i think what we could have called a sophomore slump but it hasn't just been julio you know jp crawford is having a really terrific season mike ford of all people has been really good when deployed strategically against right-handed pitching you know since july they've gotten really good production out of cal raleigh and ahoyan Eugenio Suarez, Teoscar Hernandez has has kind of turned it on. He has a 118 WRC plus since the beginning of July. So I think that they've been in a position where the offense has really been producing and has been able to sort of pick up the pitching when necessary and really um, present a formidable team when when those two pieces are clicking together. So it's been it's been a pretty uh, magical run for folks in Seattle. I don't think that this was what anyone expected either at the beginning of July or even heading into the trade deadline. We in Toronto have been led to believe you're not allowed to do that if your pitching's really good, if your starting <laughs> rotation's really good, and your bullpen's really good. And Seattle and Toronto are one two in ERA, and they're both top five in starter ERA, and they're both top five in yeah. bullpen ERA. And then yeah. We, we were led to believe that your stars are not allowed to just go on absolute heaters like that. And the offense, you know, two or three guys will be going at a time, but not everyone all at once. It's uh, it's been fun. I mean, Julio is must watch TV every single day anyway, but it's been yeah. it's been really special to see him on uh, this kind of a run again. Um, something you said within there, Meg, though, I, I wanted to follow up on because the Blue Jays have this really good pitching staff, but it's mostly been people they've acquired by trade or by free agent signing. It's a, it's a good, very good rotation, but an expensive one. And they haven't, you know, they ran this year with a four man rotation at one point because Alec Manoa was struggling and they didn't have yeah. any major league ready starters in the minors. 
Seattle has the opposite where we even heard at the deadline. Yeah, they might be willing to move one of their, their starting pitchers, uh, you know, because they, they are doing such a good job of developing them. What has gone into Seattle's ability to keep this steady pipeline of major league ready starters? Well, it's going to be interesting to see if they can maintain that because they actually have lost a couple of people, um, including, uh, I think, their pitching coordinator. Yeah. The Miners went to a college team, right? He went to A&M, I believe. So it'll be interesting to see if they are able to sustain that. But, yeah, they've they've had really good success over the last couple of years. It has been most notably on the pitching side. They've, they've been um, less successful when you look at their hitting development. I mean, you could say, well, look at Julio, but like, I don't, I don't think that Julio needed a whole lot. He just had to, you know, learn to lay off breaking balls and then he was fine. So, um, you know, they've, they've built this pipeline both uh, in terms of being able to um, really get the most out of their pitching prospects or starting pitching prospects and then make meaningful alterations to guys who have come into the organization. So, you know, I mentioned that they traded away Paul Seawald. Um, when he came to Seattle from the Mets, he was not a guy who, you know, you would think that a, a team like the Diamondbacks trying to get back into their own playoff race would trade for to stabilize their bullpen. But he, you know, really became um, an asset to Seattle and really developed. And, you know, you want to credit the players for the work that they're putting into. It's not um, simply a matter of. Um, putting them in a good death circumstance and then it works out for everyone. The guys have to respond to it, but they've been able to, to really pull some guys along and, and get a lot out of them. Um, and, you know, I think it's been a necessary um, skill for the organization in a year like this where, you know, Robbie Ray barely pitched for them this season, right? Goes down with injury. They got good, you know, sort of fifth starter production out of Marco Gonzalez while he was healthy, but then he went down with his own injury. And so all of a sudden you're like, hey, Brian Wu, you've never even pitched in AAA, but guess what? <laughs> you're coming up and you're going to be, you know, a, a fixture of this rotation, you know, and they were they were starting to see some sort of similar success with Emerson Hancock before he went down with injury. So, you know, a lot of it comes down to the personnel that you have and being able to, um, you know, identify the the kind of interventions that you're able to do well. You know, are you able to teach guys new pitches? Are you able to adjust mechanics in a way that's useful? Um, it's it's definitely um, something that you know we see teams do in sort of fits and starts across the league. And then what you'll often get is kind of what Seattle's dealing with, where you establish a reputation for being good at something on the dev side, and then a bunch of other teams want to hire your folks away yes. so that they can try to implement those same systems. So, you know, Seattle hasn't, this isn't the first time that Seattle has lost um, player dev staff to other teams, to other organizations, but it will be interesting to see how they're able to um, kind of bob and weave in, in light of those departures. Yeah. And you learn a lot about was Max Weiner, you know, the, the biggest piece of the pitching coordination and development and is right. Texas A&M suddenly a pitching factory or, you know, there are probably a whole bunch of factors at play there. The other thing the the Mariners have done, at least on the bullpen side is they just keep getting relievers who weren't very good in Toronto and making them good like Sacedo <laughs> and Thornton and now Dominic Leone. Um, yeah. So that's, that's uh, fun there. So the other part of this Mariners push to the top of the American League West and not to take any credit from them. They've been tremendous, but the Texas Rangers have also been a tire yeah. fire and kind of gone in the inverse direction. And Texas is now the team. The Blue Jays are chasing. The Jays are two and a half back of the final wild card spot. They have a big four game set with Texas coming up in, in a week and a half here. Um, what from in your estimation, and I know you've seen a lot of this team anyway, by way of being 
AL West. What has gone off the rails for this Rangers team? And, and are they, do you think they're at risk of, of tumbling out of a playoff spot entirely here? So you're right to point out how that has bolstered Seattle and, you know, to, to a certain degree, um, Houston's sort of middling performance has contributed to that too. Whenever, whenever you have a meteoric rise of the division standings, it's, it's often um, a, a story, a two-part story, right? A team playing really well and then their competition uh, falling off. And, and that certainly happens here. I mean, I think that part of what Texas has been dealing with over the last little bit has just been, you know, injury and regression on the pitching side. Um, they obviously bolstered their rotation in a big way by bringing in Scherzer. They made a move uh, prior to the deadline to acquire Elvis Chapman from the Royals. Um, but a lot of it has been kind of a little bit of everything, right? Like the, the pitching hasn't been particularly strong and that, that lineup, which has been just so electric for most of the season and punishing to opposing pitching staff has been really good at the top still, right? Like I don't think that anyone can fault Corey Seager or Marcus Semien for, uh, or Nathaniel Lowe, for instance, about what's going on in Texas, but you've seen other guys fall off, you know, you've seen um, the impact that Josh Young's injury has had to this team. You've, seen what happens when Jonah Heim and Adolis Garcia kind of fall into um, a bit of a slump. And now all of a sudden you're the Rangers and you're, you know, you're relying on Robbie Grossman and Travis Jankowski to like kind of pick up your outfield. And those guys are useful complementary pieces to a team for sure. But, you know, it, it just isn't the same sort of, um, you know, intimidating lineup that they were seeing before. And then, you know, Scherzer has been quite good since he's um, come over from the Mets, which I'm sure mm. is much to the chagrin of Mets fans. But, you know, John Gray has had a rough time of it lately. And, you know, Andrew Heaney hasn't been especially good. And you wonder if sort of regression is catching up with Dane Dunning. And then a lot of this has just been the bullpen being pretty bad. Chapman has been good but you know outside of that and and Jose Leclerc they've been uh, pretty mediocre to bad across the board so I don't think that um, what is happening with Texas is necessarily indicative of the true talent of the roster revealing itself I think that this is a, a very good baseball team and their you know ability to to produce runs on its own is probably going to end up carrying them when it's all said and done but I think that you know, a lot of people had um, some amount of doubt about this Rangers team, even with all of their splashy offseason additions that, you know, they were dependent on pitching that has been at times less good or has been often injured. And we're seeing that manifest, you know, that there were still places, even with a good lineup, where they had room to improve. So I think that this is, you know, this is um, a, a version of the Rangers team coming into the year that we kind of expected um, and, you know, they've had such a tough go of it lately um, that you expect that they will be able to turn things around just by, you know, maybe getting into a softer part of their schedule. But I, I look at the last week of the season and Seattle, Houston and the Rangers are all tussling with each other <laughs> for that final week. You know, the division, I think, is really going to come down to that and then we'll see how that trickles down to the wild card you know it's funny we were coming into the year i think we all thought oh they're going to be maybe the entire wild card field will be made up of al east teams and you know 
one of the Orioles or the Rays will probably end up there, but we could end up with pretty heavy AL West representation too. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, part of that is the Yankees and the Red Sox bowing out a little bit, the Jays underperforming, and then, yeah, some of yeah. these teams being a little better than expected. We we kind of thought, hey, the Jays playing six against Tampa and six against the Yankees late in the year could have been an AL East settling thing right. uh, as well, and now it doesn't really look that way. Um, again, Toronto and Texas have a four-game set coming up in a week and a half here in Toronto. Uh, the Jays have three last place opponents in a row before that Colorado, Oakland, and Kansas city. Um, Meg from afar, what has your impression of this blue Jays team been another team that's kind of not been bad, but disappointed. And whereas the Mariners and the Rangers have had these very defined lines of, Hey, bad to this point and then good or vice versa. The Jays have kind of just like they go four and three every seven games and that'll get you to 89 right. or 90 wins, but that might not be enough. Uh, what are your impressions uh, of this Toronto Blue Jays team? I I have been, um, I will say, impressed with the pitching. I think that, you know, Manoa aside, they, they have exceeded my expectations on the starter side there. I mean, I think everyone in baseball keeps expecting Vlad's, you know, actual line to line up with some of his underlying metrics. The fact that that has not sort of shifted back is still pretty incredible to me. Um, I just like, have you guys figured out what's going on with that guy? Nope. Um, nope. We give it so, about an hour and a half a week of, uh, yeah, of talk I, here and we're not there yet. I imagine that it is. Um, I imagine that it is flummoxing. I'm sure that if someone had figured it out, it would have it would have come together now. I mean, I will say one thing that I continue to be struck by is, and I know that the bat hasn't necessarily been, you know, all world or anything, but um, I I would feel if I were in the Blue Jays front office really good about that Kevin Kiermaier signing mm-hmm. <laughs> because that wasn't, you know, a, a particularly splashy off-season move and not an especially expensive one, right? He got like a year and nine million or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but when I put that Blue Jays team on it, it seems like uh, it seems like your booth is calling his name a lot in terms of impressive plays in the outfield. So I do still like that um, signing quite a bit. But I don't know. They just strike me as a team that hasn't really been able to put all of the pieces together at the same time. Um, and when you you know are relying on glad to have an incredible season that we all expect him and know him to be capable of. And then he kind of falters. Um, I think things go from there. And I don't know that anyone saw Manoa's struggles being as pronounced or protracted as they have been. Um, So I I don't know. It feels, it feels a little bit unlucky. There are certainly individual pieces of this team that I think are really spectacular, but it doesn't feel like it's been able to be put together all at once all the time. Yeah, that's kind of been the problem. They have one win streak that's longer than four games, and that was back in April. Right. And, you know, you've got to – this isn't universal, but usually every team that ends up being good and being a, a playoff threat has at least like a, a two-week span where they look like the best team in baseball. And right. the Blue Jays uh, certainly haven't had that. Um, a curious, Meg, I, I don't know how much you guys have done on this at Fangraphs, uh, and I think I've talked to Dan Zaborski about it a little bit and how his Zips projections have, have taken this into account. But what do you make – of the fact, and I know on the West Coast you, you've dealt with this with PCL stats forever, but the fact mm-hmm. that the International League has the numbers that it has league-wide and there's the automatic ball strike system. I ask this just because, you know, David Schneider is coming up and give this Blue Jays team sure. a boost and now Spencer Horwitz is going to come up with roster expansion.
attention. Um, what, how, what have you made of, you know, the fact that we've got to translate a little differently from each AAA league and from a little bit differently from AA and, and things like that? Um, I find it irritating. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I understand that the league um, needs to pilot these big rule changes in something approximating a, a major league level competitive environment, right? And so you, you know, you want to have a sense of how the ABS system is working and what changes need to be made to it. And we've seen over the years them make pretty meaningful changes to how the ABS system understands the strike zone, for instance, right? Um, most of the rules that we have seen come to the majors this year that everyone really likes were initially piloted in the minors, but it does make for, um, and this is, you know, less my project than it is, say, Eric Longenhagen's, it does make the sort of evaluation environment um, more challenging because you have confounding factors like the strike zone, like, you know, earlier this year, um, they were t piloting a, a pre-tacked ball um, to try to, you know, they're still trying to figure out a way to eliminate the use of sticky stuff so that there's more um, consistent uh, application and enforcement of foreign substance rules. And that made for, um, you know, guys' pitches moving a little bit differently or more dramatically than we expected. And so you're trying to say, okay, I see this incredible line from Andrew Abbott. What does this really mean? Like how much of what I am seeing of, you know, his uptick in strikeouts or movement is Andrew Abbott and how much of it is the dev environment that he's playing in. So um, I think that the, the way that we ultimately have to go about that is, you know, not totally dissimilar from what you would see with other prospects where how they respond to the new environment, how, um, their style of play, if it's a pitcher, how their repertoire and the movement and, and, and such on their pitches changes as they advance levels helps you to kind of zero in on what was where they were playing and what was um, the, the dev environment. To your point, like there, there are plenty of minor leaguers who play on the surface of a moon in their, <laughs> in their minor league parks, right? So this isn't a new problem, um, but it is a slightly different problem than it's been in the past because instead of it being, you know, the altitude in Las Vegas, you're like, well, what does the, the ABS system do to this guy? Um, so I don't, have a, I don't have a good answer for that other than you have to sort of dig in on each of these guys individually and see what you can separate from um, their performance that is them versus the environment and then see how they respond once they've been promoted into a new one. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a challenge. Um, and it's certainly one that I know uh, all of the public facing prospect folks are kind of grappling with daily to try to, you know, hone in on good evaluations that are really about the player and not just where they're playing. Uh, another new, or I guess you said that wasn't it. Translating stats is not a new problem. Uh, something that is a new problem though, Meg is um, the, a team like the Los Angeles angels placing five guys on waivers so they can get beneath the competitive balance tax so that they can get a slightly better compensation pick when Shohei Otani leaves. Um, I talked to Ben Clemens the other day and he said, this was really fun to write about once, but if he has to write about it every year, it's going to get really annoying really quickly. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of this kind of, 
you know, new thing that happened this year where eight or nine players, five or six of them who could help a potential team, almost all of them landing on the Cleveland Guardians and Cincinnati Reds. Um, is this a, a lot made of something that's not going to have much of an impact or, or does Major League Baseball need to look at this a little more closely? I think that it's, um, it is something that the league would be well-served to sort of nip in the bud. I think that there's a lot about what Los Angeles did that is very specific to Los Angeles and the circumstances they have on their roster around Otani. I mean, I, I did think that some of the reactions to them um, were a little exaggerated because you can't say that that team didn't try at the deadline, right? There's a version of the Angels season where they just trade Otani and mm-hmm. say, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to reach the postseason. Let's, get what we can for this guy. You know, we like the prospects we're being offered more than we, you know, think we will like what we would get in the draft uh, as a comp pick when we stick a qualifying offer on him on his way out the door. And then we're not even having this conversation. Instead, they traded, you know, a top 100 prospect to get Lucas Giolito. And we're like, we're, we're going for this, you know, and that's sort of been prior to this week that had sort of been their approach all season, right? When they would have guys go down with injury, they'd go out and get new guys. Like they were really trying to, you know, put Otani in October. Um, that said, I, I think that you, that we should be uh, nervous and skeptical of team behavior that signals um, not only that it's so important to get under the CBT threshold, that you're so concerned about budget that you're, you know, keen to shed six and a half million dollars worth of payroll. But I think that when you look at the teams that sort of laid claim to these guys and ended up bringing them on, this doesn't move the needle all that much for Cleveland just because of how um, far out of the race they are. I know that they have a, they have five games against the twins in the next little bit here, but you know, when Dan ran the numbers on this for us this morning, like it didn't, it didn't move things that appreciably for them. It moved the needle more for Cincinnati to claim Harrison Bader, who was also put on waivers by the Yankees and Hunter Renfro. And you might recall that the Reds really didn't do anything at the mm-hmm. deadline. Like they got Sam Mole from Oakland, <laughs> but they were not, despite this team being so fun and so young and really, you know, making a run at a wild card spot, since he didn't really do anything. And now they have important reinforcements for their outfield because they have had a couple of guys go down with injury um, and they're able to bring in these reinforcements on you know September 1st when they they really sat out the deadline and I think that that's where you know the league is going to want to examine this and see how they can tweak the waiver rules to disincentivize teams sitting out the deadline and waiting now I think that for a lot of clubs what Cincy did isn't it wasn't appealing at the deadline and it wouldn't be appealing a year from now right Cincinnati didn't have the benefit of good players for a month. Who knows where they'd be in the wild card race right now if they had actually made moves at the deadline to try to bolster their roster at that time. I think there are going to be plenty of teams that look around and say, we're trying to win a division. We're trying to secure a first round buy. You know, you saw what Texas did at the deadline. They saw Houston in their rear view and they were like, that's not acceptable. We're going to go get literally Max Scherzer, right? And I think there are still going to be plenty of teams that are incentivized to do that. And I think there are going to be a lot of teams on the other side 
that would rather make trades that bring in quality prospects for their organization rather than simply get salary relief. For sure. But, oh, yeah, I, I think oh, that makes well, a lot of sense. And yeah, Texas, uh, Texas did what they did and now they are where they are. But that was the, right. the right way to do it. Um, Meg, I have to let you go here because I've only got a couple seconds left. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Thanks so much. Meg Rowley, managing editor at Fangraphs, co-host of Effectively Wild. I do only have a couple seconds here left. So thank you to Meg. Thanks to Doug Fox, Susie Hunter, Caitlin McGrath for coming on. Thanks to Nick Blackmore uh, filling in behind the glass this week. To Lance and Jennifer, as usual. Uh, Blair and Barker have you 5 to 7. Show Ali will have you for Jay's Talk pregame 8 to 8.30. He'll also have you for Jay's Talk postgame. Ben Shulman and Jesse Rubinoff are coming up next here. Hyunjin Ryu, Chris Flexen, 8.40 tonight. It's an 8.10 game tomorrow. It is a 3.10 game on Sunday. It is a 9.30 a.m. must-win game between Canada and Spain on Sportsnet on Sunday as well. Uh, we're off Monday for the holidays, so we will talk to you Tuesday morning, and hopefully the Blue Jays' playoff odds a little higher than 43.6%. Have a great weekend.